you go. Uh, we're pressing on in Luke uh, chapter 9 this morning. If you've got Bibles, you might want to turn there. This uh, sermon series has almost accidentally been uh, entitled, Are You Ready? Uh, another 60s readiness song, pop song, was fed to me this week on my feed. The Staple Singers uh, sang a song called, If You're Ready, Come Go With Me. Now, uh, I already lost one hamburger on this, so I won't uh, ask if anyone has ever heard of this song, but the Staple Singers are worth listening to. But in that song, they mentioned that uh, where they're going, there is no hatred, uh, there is peace and love, there are no disasters, no wars, no exploitation, no domination. Uh, the troublemakers, liars, and backstabbers will all get what's coming to them. And uh, the Staple Singers are arising out of a gospel music tradition. And uh, if you know the history, you know that uh, that gospel influence became uh, tainted with uh, hippiedom and then politics, and it literally destroyed uh, Motown uh, music and uh, took them all down. But, you know, what you hear in all that and what people resonated with is the yearning of every human heart. And the yearning of every human heart still looks a lot like heaven. And that's what we want to think about this morning. We catch a little bit of a glimpse of it. And just as the followers of Jesus were being prepared for his departure uh, from chapter 9 moving forward in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're considering this section, in a sense, derivatively, uh, in preparation for uh, a new phase in the life of the church with a new pastor. Uh, I read an article uh, this week that was entitled, and you can look this up on the Gospel Coalition, uh, Where Spurgeon Got His Church. And uh, it was kind of an interesting title. I wondered what he even meant by it. But uh, I went to it, and it turns out that uh, Spurgeon was asked when he was teaching uh, a group of ministers how he got his church. And, uh, and his answer was, <clears throat> I, I did no such thing. Uh, I didn't get my church. All I did was preach the gospel. Uh, the church itself got the church. Uh, the congregation got the congregation uh, through the power of ordinary outreach. And I thought it was helpful reading that, uh, that when you are getting ready for the next pastor, uh, there is a little bit of hope that the next pastor is going to rectify all the wrongs that the next pastor is going to be the jet fuel uh, that moves the church uh, forward. Uh, but in fact, that's to misunderstand uh, the nature of the ministry. Uh, in fact, the congregation needs to be getting ready. Uh, the congregation needs to be assessing itself. The congregation needs to be undergoing the normal patterns of congregational life in which we repent and we believe the gospel and we take to heart uh, the things that are being taught. Uh, so, with that in mind, we're going to move into this passage. There are a couple of preliminary things that I want to notice before I read the passage. Uh, one is that this is kind of unique in the Gospel of Luke, uh, but there's a tight coherence uh, to this chapter. Uh, Luke doesn't ordinarily operate that way nearly as much as Matthew and Mark do. His uh, episodes are a little bit more scattered. Uh, but this passage starts out with, now about eight days after these sayings, 
so he's tying them together. He's tying together Peter's confession, which was followed immediately by Jesus' first foretelling of his rejection, death, and resurrection, and, followed, and, and that was followed by this exacting charge uh, that his disciples, if they wanted to come after him, in fact, if anyone wanted to come after him, uh, that person needed to deny self, take up one's cross daily, and follow him. And then the highest possible stakes were mentioned uh, at the end of that charge, losing one's soul and shame at the consummation. You know, T mentioned last week we were on our way home that, you know, to read that charge of Jesus, one would almost uh, want to stay away from being a Christian, except for what's at stake, except for what's at stake, because it's this self-denial and cross-bearing is not the message uh, that we want to hear. So that's one of the things to notice, that this transfiguration that we're going to read about in a minute uh, exists in direct relationship to that charge of Jesus, which exists in direct relationship to Peter's uh, first confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And then the second thing to note, I'll just remind you, it's hard not to um, have this staring me in the face this morning as, uh, or this week as I was studying the passage, is the resonance uh, that this passage has with the book of Hebrews, uh, which we just got through. Uh, we got through chapter 12, uh, where in Mount Sinai was being described in fairly terrifying terms, and, and that's happening here. There's glory on the mountain, the presence of Moses, the cloud, the lightning, the face of God. Uh, all of that is reminiscent of Hebrews chapter 12, but probably more to the point, and I wasn't here when it happened, but when you were in the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, Jesus was described as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And as uh, breathtaking as is that description, uh, here you see it actually played out. Uh, you actually see Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So with that in mind, uh, follow with me as I read uh, these verses, starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, a pretty wild passage. Uh, Let me just remind you that uh, all, of, all such passages uh, in the Scripture are accurate accounts 
this is written so that you would understand what exactly happened. Uh, Luke, of course, is not a person who was there, uh, but in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he said, I went out and carefully interviewed eyewitnesses. I interviewed eyewitnesses so that you can be sure uh, that what is being recorded actually happened. This is one of those passages uh, that is repeated uh, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount uh, the singular uh, episode in the life of Jesus. Um, The first thing I want us to notice before we get into what actually happened uh, is the importance that is attached to prayer. Uh, This cannot be understated. Uh, You have to see the way this takes place uh, with some regularity uh, in the Gospel of Luke. It already happened back in verse 18. Uh, Jesus is praying before he uh, queries the disciples on his identity. And here again, it says that he invites Peter, John, and James to go up on the mountain with him to pray. And while he was praying, while he was praying, the following things took place. Uh, the exact same thing happened uh, in chapter 3, and I'll read that to you. Uh, it says there that when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Um, these things need to be linked, they need to be understood, we need to pay very careful attention to them. Prayer is uh, the setting for divine disclosure, and we're going to get into what actually happened, but we'll come back and talk about this. Uh, But basically, I want to say, let's notice that things happen when you pray. Things take place when you pray. Might be a little bit imperceptible to you, uh, but we are woeful in our, our neglect of prayer, and let's move on. Um, four stages to what happens, uh, at least the way I'm going to unpack it. First, uh, Jesus is transfigured. Uh, His face radiates. It says that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Uh, This is Jesus being uh, transfigured. This is the glory of Jesus shining through. Uh, It is said in verse 32, that Peter and John and James see his glory. And this word for dazzling white uh, in the Greek has to do with lightning. Uh, So it really is kind of blinding uh, for them to look at Jesus. And you need to understand that Jesus is showing the disciples his own inherent glory. This is something that is intrinsic to him. Uh, This is a little bit reminiscent of Moses going up onto the mountain in Exodus 34 And if you remember that, his face shone when he came back down. But for Moses, it was a reflected glory. Uh, And it actually faded over time. He put a veil uh, so that the people wouldn't have to see the glow, but also so that they wouldn't notice uh, that the glory was fading. So Moses was like the moon, a reflected glory. Uh, Jesus is like the sun. This radiance is his own. It is his own glory. And you want to kind of take a deep breath at this point, and I almost want to say, let's break into small groups and pray, because we have to consider what it means that Jesus is glorified here. 
Because this glory of Jesus takes on a particular shade uh, in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. Uh, But the glory of Jesus is most emphatically displayed otherwise, apart from the transfiguration, uh, in the cross. This is where Jesus says to the Father, the, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he means by that is the time has come to engage in all of these things that are going to take place in the last week of his life uh, in Jerusalem. And this is the crux, in a sense, uh, the essence of Christianity, the very essence of what the gospel teaches us. And this is where Christianity becomes at odds with every other religion, And it even becomes, it's even sharply at odds with our own instincts, with what we expect. You and I tend to think of glory uh, as something that means victory, it means power, it means acclaim, it means success. It is wonderful. Glory is wonderful. I I think the, the most vivid pictures of glory in our popular cultural life are, are pictures of victory. Uh, so the victory of sports teams is the thing that comes to my mind most readily. There's a glory in that. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm drawn, forgive me, don't scorn me, but I am drawn periodically to YouTube condensations of victories by my football team, uh, uh, you know, where we won improbably, and there was glory. You know, there were the, the lights flashed and the confetti was dropped and there was weeping and there was joy and players hugging each other and professing love for each other and, and all of this greatness and this glory. That's the way we tend to think of glory. And, and for Jesus, when he says it's now time for the Son of Man to be glorified, it's the time for his rejection and for his shame. And those two coexist at the same time in Jesus. It's not, it's not as though his glory is all the shame, but his glory is both the shame and the radiance of his own glory. They are both at the same time. And this is something that, uh, again, I, I've mentioned this book by Tom Holland called Dominion. If you, if you like to have a long slog through a book, uh, if you're one of those kinds of people, and I am, Uh, You will delight in this book, but he just spends page after page after page showing how this confluence of the deity, the honor, the glory of Christ with his shame and degradation on the cross, that those two things coexist in him all the time. And so Jesus is a complicated figure. Now, he's not complicated in and of himself. He's entirely at one But as we apprehend him, and there's a beauty to this, you know, the beauty is that if you are um, downtrodden, you know, if you are on the bottom side, uh, not the sunny side of the street, but the shady side of the street, if things are very, very difficult for you, uh, there is a gentle shepherd that is calling you, that is calling you to come to him and to find rest for your souls. Um, I listened to a uh, hymn this morning. It just kind of came on uh, my Sunday morning listening. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling to sinners, come home. And that's true. But it is also true 
that if you become complacent, you know, that if you've become hard-hearted, that if you've become proud, uh, then Jesus is still calling you, but in a distinctly different voice. And it's a much firmer voice. So both of these things are true at the same time, uh, that Jesus is glorified in his shame on the cross, and Jesus is also glorified kind of magnificently and awesomely and fearfully uh, here on the mountain. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that Moses and Elijah appear. Uh, Moses is the great lawgiver, and Elijah is the great representative of the prophets. So we understand the Old Testament to be divided between the law and the prophets. That's often the way the Old Testament is described, as the law and the prophets. Here's the lawgiver, here's the great prophet. And they have a conversation with Jesus, and Luke alone mentions the topic of the conversation. In verse 31, uh, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. They're speaking about his death. He's just talked about the fact that he's going to Jerusalem, uh, there to be rejected, betrayed, and put to death. Uh, But what's interesting is you'll note that there's a footnote there. And if you uh, tap on your footnote or if you look in the footnote on the bottom of your page of your Bible, uh, you will notice that the actual word is exodus. They're talking about his exodus. Now, what they're talking about is his death. But it's very rare that death is described as an exodus. But for Jesus, it was an exodus. Now, what's going on there? Uh, There's a lot of exodus in this little account. Uh, We see, as as mentioned, the mountain, the cloud, the voice. There's a lot of that going on. Moses himself is there. Um, But if you think about the exodus, what was the exodus? What was taking place in the book of Exodus? And then let me go back to Luke chapter 4. We we weren't there, but you may remember it. And again, Luke is very artful in the structure of his gospel. And uh, he mentions in in chapter 4 the time when Jesus, after having been baptized, after having been sent into the wilderness there to be tempted for 40 days, that he makes his way to his hometown of Nazareth, and he is invited there uh, to preach. And, and this is set up, it is structured as Jesus' inaugural sermon. So just as a president, our president gets up and gives an inauguration address when he's inaugurated as the president, setting his agenda, lining up what he's hoping is going to happen uh, while he serves as president, uh, Jesus lays down this foundational sermon, and he is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Do you remember that? And he reads from the prophet Isaiah the following. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now there's not time in this sermon to go back and look at that passage. Uh, But right from the very beginning, uh, Jesus announced that a big part of what he was going to do was to set the captives free. And this is a big theme in the Gospel of Luke, and I only bring it up now because they were talking about his exodus. They were talking about what was going to be accomplished in his departure. 
And this is, again, this theme of the freedom of the captives is big in the Gospel of Luke. You see it right at the very beginning. Uh, When Mary sings her song, when she meets her cousin Elizabeth, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Later on in that chapter, Zechariah sings a song when John is named, and he says, Blessed be the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So there is, you know, this theme in the Gospel of Luke that keeps getting carried on where Jesus is lifting up um, those who are in rough shape. He is liberating them. He is setting them free. Now, of course, in the gospel, not everyone is set free, but the oppressed, those of low estate, the outcasts. I, I like to describe it as those for whom life is not quite working out the way they had hoped it would. Those folks find the favor of the Lord, and they are lifted up. While those who are living their best life now, in fact, are brought low. And this liberation is accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, that's a little bit derivative from the main point, but that one word, Exodus, will jump out at you. And if you are in the position of wanting to be set free... Uh, there is good news uh, in this passage. Now, I want to keep moving forward with it. Uh, The third thing that happens uh, is that Peter, having woken up, puts his foot in his mouth. Uh, Let's get back to the fact that Jesus praying is critical. Now, think about this. And again, you know, one of the themes in this chapter uh, and in these few chapters is the resolute failure of the disciples. Uh, They are always... um, Uh, messing up, and it's worse than messing up. They are positively uh, faithless. Uh, In fact, Jesus says that in the next passage. He calls them a twisted and faithless generation, calls the disciples that. Um, And so Peter, you know, true to form, James and John as well, they are invited to the mountain to pray with Jesus. Imagine how awesome that would be. Imagine the privilege of it, to be invited to pray. You three guys, come with me We're going to go pray on the mountain. Hitherto, I've been praying alone on the mountain, but I want you to come with me and pray. And they fall dead asleep. Uh, We all feel the need for sleep. I love sleep. We do not correspondingly feel the need to pray, and thus we're to be pitied. And, And we ought to cry out for mercy. It is of necessity that we pray. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable. Go look it up, Luke chapter 18. He told them a parable to the end that they would always pray and never give up. Now, you know, I just throw down the gauntlet to you uh, as one who is very weak in prayer. But folks, you know, how are we entering into a new phase of the life of Carriage Lane Church and not praying? We, we, you need to pray. 
And I'll mention it one more time before we go home today. Um, Here's what happens. Peter wakes up. He is in awe. It says that they see his glory in verse 32. And as Moses and Elijah start to leave, uh, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Well, um, what's going on? There's some speculation about it. Uh, Peter wants to stay. He wants to keep it going. You can sympathize with that. Uh, You would want to stay a little bit longer uh, yourself. Uh, But because of what the voice says to him, it seems that his categorical mistake is to assume an equality between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And he says, you know, there's three of you here. Let's build three tents, and we can get you guys set up. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to understand the exaltation of Moses and Elijah uh, in the eyes of the people. Remember earlier in the passage when uh, Herod had asked, who is this that I'm hearing about? The answer was, some say Elijah. And when Jesus asked uh, his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some people think you're Elijah. So Elijah looms large. You know how large Moses looms. But even though you can appreciate Peter wanting to stay, you have to wince at his folly. And so he's corrected. Uh, Even though he didn't know what he was saying, God responded to him. And so the fourth element of this uh, is simply this uh, cloud and this voice. And all of a sudden, this looks an awful lot like Mount Sinai. They are on a mountain, they are enveloped in a cloud, and they are afraid. They were afraid as they entered the cloud is what it says. I was thinking of the earlier passage. They were sore afraid. Remembering Sinai, they might have feared for their lives. Remember, at Sinai, they were told, if anyone even touches the mountain, he'll be put to death. If even a a cow touches the mountain, it will be put to death. And the voice says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Uh, Jesus is not to be compared to Moses and Elijah as though he was on par with them. Uh, He alone is the son, and there is no one else to compare with him. Now, you know, again, we understand that almost implicitly, uh, but Peter needed reminding, as did John and James. Uh, He is the chosen, he is the son. He is the chosen. And, and really, in a sense, that Peter, James, and John survive is a bit of a miracle. That they survive eventually to tell the tale. They survive without a blood sacrifice. The, the, the presence of God. Well, of course, because Jesus was their sacrifice or was to become their sacrifice. They survive without a perfect righteousness. They should have been killed. Uh, But Jesus was that as well. So that's what happens. You know, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to put this into play? How are we going to apply it? Well, again, I'll say for the third time, uh, it is hard to pray, uh, but you need to keep after it. It is hard really to worship. One of the sermons that I read this week on this passage Uh, tried to say, as much as this is about prayer, it's about worship. 
that what these three were doing, seeing Jesus in his glory, uh, was a foretaste of Christian worship. Uh, But it really is the case that transformation takes place more in worship and prayer than in deliberation and action. We tend to think of the, our, the change as necessary in our lives taking place by virtue of the assertion of our wills, by the making of schedules, by the formation of accountability relationships. Not that any of those things are bad. All of those things are good and necessary. But where does the change take place? And I think that you can kind of read the Bible in a certain way where you see that change takes place by the Spirit of God almost when you're least expecting it. That the Spirit is given when you believe the gospel. And the demonstration that you're actually believing the gospel is that you're praying. And you're disavowing any of your mechanisms. You're disavowing any of your strategies. You know, the, the evil strategies by which you think you'll be saved. But even the more sanctified sensibilities by which you feel like you will grow. In fact, those need to be disavowed, and mercy sought, and grace sought, and in that uh, is transformation. So this is a tightly argued thing in the book of Galatians. I won't get into it, but uh, go look at the book of Galatians. Look at the confluence of the Spirit and of faith and what happens in the end uh, when fruit is born. Isn't that an interesting way to describe godliness? An interesting way to describe real, feet-on-the-ground righteousness. It is fruit that is born. You need to pray. Come and pray. Uh, Come and worship. You might not know how to pray. That's fine. We don't know how to pray either. But set your alarm. Thursday morning, 6 o'clock. Come and help us pray. Uh, We need to be praying. Uh, Secondly, I want to suggest that you and I apply the words of the Father uh, to ourselves. Uh, He says that Jesus is his son, uh, his chosen one. Uh, When you put your faith in Jesus, when you abandon your self-salvation strategies, when you turn away from those, And when you say, God, you're the only one who can save me because of what Jesus did on the cross, well, an amazing thing happens because God says to you, you are my son. Now, you're not the one and only son the way Jesus was. You're not the one and only chosen, but you are God's son. And if it will help the women, you are God's daughter. But son is an important word there because you have the full rights of the heir of the estate. And so please hear these words for yourself. Uh, You know, the deficiencies that you experience in your discipleship are largely tied to uh, your inability to connect with the voice of God here saying, you are my son. You are my son. You know, we get back to Galatians where it says in the fullness of time, God sent his spirit, or God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Then it says he also sent his spirit. 
by which we cry, Abba, Father. Just as God sent his Son, God sent his Spirit. And to be uh, his Son is also to be his chosen. Uh, It's what the Apostle says in Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then what flows on that, and I want you to notice the coherence. You are my son, you are my chosen, now listen to Jesus, listen to him. There's all kinds of biblical theology behind this command to listen to him, but let me just say uh, that listen to him means to obey him. Uh, Jesus said several times, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear uh, what is being said. To hear and to not obey is folly. It almost makes you wonder if you've even heard. And you and I, brothers and sisters, need pointedly to submit to Jesus' authority. Obedience always follows from true faith. You know, one of the big worries in the church has always been that if the gospel were preached rich and full and free, that if the gospel were understood as the free grace of God, uh, for the, as the free unmerited favor of God, uh, that people would become loosey-goosey and disobedient, uh, that they would grow lax, they would not obey God. That's been the fear. That's what was involved in the Reformation and is involved ever since in every uh, struggle. Not every struggle, but a lot of struggles are based on that. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's the opposite that takes place. When the gospel of God's free grace hits, when it sinks in, when you hear the voice say, you're my son, um, well, a lot of things take place. The Heidelberg Catechism's actually got a great question where it says, since I'm saved by grace alone, why must I still obey? And you can almost hear the writers of Heidelberg saying, glad you asked the question. But when you believe, when you receive the free grace of God, first, the Holy Spirit is given, and a life transformation begins to take place that I was just talking about. Secondly, gratitude wells up. There is a gratitude for having been forgiven, for having been restored, for having been given new life that immediately propels one uh, into the forsaking of the old and the embracing of the new. Thirdly, light shines so that God is glorified in the lives of his people. You become a city on a hill. You become a, a lamp that is not hidden. And, and, and God is glorified uh, in your life. Fourthly, faith is solidified through a changed life. You become more and more convinced uh, that God does love you and that he has gotten a hold of you. And fifthly, concern for neighbors rises as well, specifically that your neighbors would be able to see and savor Jesus uh, as the king of the church, as the Lord of the universe, uh, as the savior of sinners. So Peter, James, and John get this little taste of heaven. Uh, Again, I can resonate with Peter's desire to stay there just a little bit longer. Um, But it seems like it was so overwhelming that they couldn't talk about it until after the resurrection. And that's something to ponder a little bit as well. Uh, We won't do it right now. But you and I 
need to have a greater vision of heaven, a greater vision of what it is that we're headed towards. And this is, this is a picture of it, one kind of picture of it. And we need to understand that all of the things that we yearn for, all of the things that we're hoping for, all of the, the, the resolutions that we're seeking are found there. They're found in Christ. And, and there, there is this lightning blast, you know, that hits these guys. And, uh, you know, as I read this, I thought, I, I want some of that lightning blast. Maybe you need a little bit of shot of lightning in your life. Because there is a time when it clicks and things all of a sudden become clear and they become simple. They become very simple. Uh, enjoying, rejoicing, loving uh, the Lord and his word and, and finding, uh, rising up from within you a desire, an unfettered desire uh, to put these things into practice. So let's pray.